All right, uh, the series that I'm doing now has been a series called The Struggle with Secularism. I believe that the early uh, congregations struggled with paganism. That battle is somewhat won, though superstition is still here. Uh, but it's now been replaced in the modern world and the postmodern world with a batter, battle against secularism. The secular battle, as I said, is a false dichotomy which posits a no-God zone, which is, the do, which is the domain of the secular, and a God zone, which is the domain of religion. This compartmentalization uh, has actually overtaken the church to a large extent, and uh, it's created a serious problem. Many religious Jews and Christians are blinded to this error because uh, of the biblical and theological ignorance that permeates our culture at the present time, and the lack of an obvious conflict between the secular and sacred zones. The pagan zone uh, and the uh, zone of Israel was a clear boundary line, but secular and uh, religious in our culture is more difficult to address that. Now, I explained earlier in the series that this secular idea grew out of uh, the religious in the arts, in media, in schools, in health, in parenting, and in marriage as the modern secular worldview emerged from the Renaissance, the Reformation, the Enlightenment, and the modern science movement. Over time, more and more of our everyday life uh, became secular, and the religious then split into two, liberal and conservative, uh, which we've talked about before, and both of those began retreating into uh, a separate area of the religious while the secular continued to grow more and more in our everyday life and experience. It resulted in many believers uh, thinking only in terms of salvation when they talk about the spiritual. And for most uh, evangelicals, this has even reached the point of uh, the only thing they're concerned about, as I said before, is salvation. The question is, is you is or is you ain't God's baby, and that's all they care about. And so the whole rest of the scriptures, the whole rest of the purpose of God gets lost in that context. So I uh, began the series with a passage I want to go back to, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30, uh, verse 15, where God says, I have set before you today life and prosperity, and death, and adversity. And there really is a uh, this life and good, uh, death and evil, which is really what is being said there. Uh, we talk about the distinctions of life and death and good and evil, so I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. However, I do want to say something uh, that ties into why I'm doing this series. And this series is going to be a little confusing because it's something I want you to struggle with. I don't want to give you a conclusion. So I'm sending you down some roads that you will have to struggle with. Uh, the book of Hebrews says that those who come to maturity and have strong meat are those who, by reason of use, have exercised their senses to discern good and evil. This is getting that biblical worldview inside your mind. This is being able by experience to discern good and evil. You don't go, what is, what's the verse? You internalize the scriptures. You 
engage in obedience to them, which creates an experience. That experience is the experience of truth. The scriptures are not meant to be studied, though they are to be studied. They're meant to be done. And it is in the doing of them that the experience comes out. And it's in the experience that we understand the, the message and the will and the purpose of God. Once you have that, just like balancing a bike, you get on something else, you can still balance. Because you have exercised your senses to discern balance, to discern good and evil. One of the things that I want us to do is to begin to remove the secular from our life. We've already talked about that which is holy and that which is regular, that which is common. Common is not evil. Good and evil, holy and common, are, are, have overlaps, but they're not the same concepts. And the third one that is difficult comes out of Leviticus chapter 11, uh, the clean and the unclean. Now, I talked about this before, that clean is, uh, refers to a person, an animal, a condition, or a status, uh, or a behavior that uh, is acceptable, that is without contamination, spiritual or physical, and which may be used, in some cases, clean things can be used for a holy purpose, but they can also be used in a common purpose. And the biblical text assumes that the reader understands these categorical differences. And we don't. We think of clean and unclean as clean and dirty because our mom told us to wash our hands. So we think only in a physical sense. We don't think necessarily in a spiritual sense unless we think of sin as polluting. We don't, we don't get the nuances of this. So I want us to, to uh, learn this. Now, clean and unclean is primarily understood in Judaism through the commandments related to food, what you eat and don't eat, and sexuality. The sexual commandments address these things, and then bodily uh, issues and other things that relate to clean and unclean. Brought up in Christianity, but lost in the free church because of our overemphasis on uh, just salvation. Unclean refers to a physical substance or a condition, situation, or behavior that pollutes or defiles. And as a result of its polluting capacity, uh, you are to avoid it or separate it in the biblical commands. The condition of being unclean may be accidental or serendipitous, or it can be intentional, and it exists at varying, uh, it causes you, you to be unclean for various periods, which might be until sundown, might be for seven days, it might even be for longer. Uh, it also may be an unchanging condition, as we will see in the future when we talk about the unclean spirits. In the New Newer Testament, we get an enormous number of uh, passages that talk about the spirits, the demons, as unclean spirits, as that which defiles. And so we'll talk about that. So an uh, unclean item or condition will pollute a common item, rendering it unclean. It's not the opposite. The clean doesn't render the unclean clean. Uh, I learned this very early. I had uh, I took the Christian release time education in elementary school, not because I was religious. It got me out of math. 
you know, I'm, I'm a practical man. And uh, there was a, a, a pastor or whatever he was trying to explain it, and he had, a, he had dirty water in a glass, and he had clean water in a glass, and he said, uh, which one of these would you like to drink? And I said, I'll drink the clean one. And he said, you won't drink this one? I said, no, it's dirty. So he poured some of the clean water in the dirty one, and he said, will you drink it now? I said, no. I'll drink the clean one. And then he poured some of the dirty into the clean one. He said, what about now? I said, I'm not drinking anything, right? And that was my entire religious instruction. I think that clean, clean means qualified, uh, means, unclean means, means disqualified for, yes. for, for, for contact with the holy. Exactly. So that, for example, when they're coming down the Jericho Road, Past the, uh, past the man who's, who the Good Samaritan eventually helps. Right. The reason the priest doesn't want to go and help the person is that by touching him, he'll become ritually unclean. Exactly. Disqualified for going into the presence of Exactly. God. So it has nothing to do with dirt. Right. It has to do with qualified or unqualified. It's, I was just thinking here, it's like, these are the clothes you can wear when you go visit grandma. And the rest of the clothes are perfectly fine, but we don't go use those to visit grandma. Exactly. The ones we use to visit grandma are, are, are in the category of clean, acceptable. You can go into the presence of grandma with these clothes. But you're not going to go see grandma in those clothes. But not, it's not that anything is dirty or anything is unholy. It's just qualified or disqualified. Right. The unholy is a different category completely that we'll, we'll talk about. But the problem is we can do this intellectually, but... The scriptures teach us to do it experientially. And so I want to talk about that in in this context. Now, why am I bringing it up? I'm bringing it up because uh, truth is learned by experience. We, We tend, because of our experience, to think in terms of clean and dirty. Not clean and unclean, not appropriate and not appropriate. We don't, we don't think that way because that's not our experience. Our experience was always wear clean underwear because you might get in an accident. You know, those kind of things, right? So that's our, that's our mindset. So I want us to uh, use a category that has been given to us as Gentile believers to come alongside Israel. Israel's got a full spectrum of understanding these differences, And uh, they see it in the priesthood, they see it in the high priesthood, they see it in various levels of statuses, and and it became uh, the experience of the community as well as the individuals. We don't have such an experience. So I want us to begin to do that. I want to lay the foundation this week. Next week, I'll get into the exceptions and the details of that so that you can begin to play around with that for yourselves and then also for your children. So, in Acts 15, we are told that you and I, uh, Gentiles, what are we going to do with the Gentiles? They've come to the faith. Do we circumcise and make them do everything? A burden that Israel still struggles with. Or, what do we do? Well, they decided that there were four things that were essential. I don't think these are the only things, but these became the essential foundational things. And that was to avoid things sacrifice to idols, that's going to be related to eating. To avoid blood, that's also related to eating. To avoid things strangled, that's also related to eating. And fornication, which is related to the sexuality. So I'm going to 
address the idea of what we eat and don't eat as a way of engaging in what I'm going to call the clean-unclean game. You know, I talk about the holy common game. It's the experience of doing that you begin to get the aha in that framework. So we're going to go all the way back to Genesis and take a look at the issue of eating uh, and what you can eat and what you can't eat. We'll begin with Genesis chapter 2. And this is, uh, I, I want to lay the foundation because if you start as most Christians do with the exceptions and the Pauline passages, you don't have that foundation uh, to see what they're talking about, and then you fill in your own context, which becomes a problem. So in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, the scripture says, The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it, you will die. Now, I don't want to get into the whole interpretation of what the tree of good and evil is. What's clear here is that there are things that Adam can eat and there is something that Adam cannot eat. Notice, he's not given the animals to eat at this point. He's not given uh, insects to eat. He's not given fowl to eat. He's, he, this is a discussion of the fruits and nuts of the trees, perhaps the vegetation, but there is even a limitation. You don't have permission to eat just anything you want. God determines what you eat and what you don't eat, and he begins that in this context. Now, when we get to Genesis chapter 7, we get a, a distinction of categories of clean and unclean. And so what we get in this passage is, uh, the Lord said to Noah, enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen righteous before me in this time. You will take for yourselves by every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, that means 14, the male and female, seven pairs. And of the animals which are not clean, uh, two, a male and his female, that's two pairs, also the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of the earth. So, Adam brings these in, and the categories of clean and unclean are already established and understood. Now, again, what does clean mean? It doesn't mean these are good and these are evil, or these are filthy. These are, it means these are acceptable for a particular use and these are not. Okay? Now, what is that use? We pick that up in chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 18. Scripture says, Noah went out with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out uh, by their families from the ark. And Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Notice that the clean animals are acceptable for sacrifice to the Lord. The other ones are not. We'll see this expanded in the Torah where 
if you give a clean animal to the Lord, it can be offered. But if you give an unclean animal to the Lord, you either have to redeem it or you have to break its neck. In other words, it can't be used in that same notion. Does that mean it's, uh, it's bad or evil? No, it means it's not acceptable for this purpose. It has its own purpose, right? But it's not that purpose. Okay? So we begin to get this unfolding. Now, what happens is God continues in this passage to uh, tell uh, Noah in, in chapter 9, the very next chapter, he says, the, verse 2, The fear of you and the terror of you shall be on every beast of the earth, every bird of the sky, and everything that creeps on the ground. All the fish of the sea are given into your hand. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So, we get an expansion of what can be eaten. Up until this time, there were sacrifices going on. And people would eat of the meat of those sacrifices. Because that's part of the process of sacrifice. And that's also why these are not uh, to be sacrificed. These animals are not to be sacrificed. Now God says, you can eat of this. If it's moving, you can eat it. But you cannot eat the blood. And this begins... This prohibition that is included in Acts 15 of not eating the blood with the animal. Uh, And the scripture gives us explanations of this. I didn't get it. This is why I say you've got to struggle with this experientially. I was reading these passages. I was reading a passage that we're going to look at uh, uh, where God talks about this. In Leviticus, and he says that if you are hunting, and he's, it's interesting, he says if the Israelite or the Gentile who dwells with Israel is hunting, and he gets the food, he's not going to sacrifice his food. Okay, you're not at the place. God made it very clear the sacrifice is going to be at the place where I tell you, not just anywhere you go. So now this is going to eat the food that's not a sacrifice. And he says, you will take the blood and you will pour it out on the ground and you will cover it up. So I was in the backyard over in Garden Grove and I'm eating. Yeah, I'm cooking, I'm barbecuing. And uh, the, uh, the, the uh, steaks that I'd done, I had done fairly rare. And I stacked them all up on the plate. And when I moved them from the plate, there was this flood of blood on the plate. And all of a sudden, I remembered that passage. I took the the plate, and I opened the earth, and I poured that blood on the earth, and I covered it over, and I had, if you will, an epiphany. I began to see that passage differently. And it began me on a process of separating the blood, the obvious blood, from anything uh, in my experience. And so at the Southern Baptist Convention in New Orleans, I was with another pastor. And we were sitting in Ronald Reagan's favorite seat in that restaurant for some reason. And we ordered steaks. And when they brought them, there was blood from them. We had asked for them medium well. We got them. They were kind of bloody. So we're taking napkins and we're... 
stopping it and separating it. You know, we're doing that thing. We're, we can't pour it on the ground. We'd be kicked out of the restaurant. But we're doing the best we can at that level. And the, and the waitress comes up and says, what are you doing? And I said, uh, practicing a biblical command. And again, that sense of practicing the presence of God and acknowledging that God has control even over what I eat and how I eat it was major in my understanding. And so in Leviticus chapter 11, uh, we are given uh, that. I don't have time to go into all of it, but it's fascinating that in Leviticus chapter 11, it actually talks about the sacrifices that also the Gentiles who dwell with Israel uh, will give. Uh, And then specifically, uh, it begins to uh, explain uh, what can be eaten and not eaten by Israel. Now, what we have here is something important. Mankind, Noah, is given a pretty broad dietary structure with that clear statement that you will not eat the blood. When Israel comes, God says, you are kadosh, you are holy unto me, you will be a light to the nations, and he limits their diet even closer. So that what they are eating are only the things that would be appropriate to give to the Lord. So that they are seen in their actual behavior as a light to us of a reminder of that line between the clean and the the unclean. Not the dirty, the appropriate and what's appropriate. That That light to the nations. Uh, This is why I'm convinced that Israel is part of special revelation. Only culture created by God. God created all of ours by scattering us. But Israel was a specific design of a language, a people, a land, a way of life to be a light to us in that way. And so this, this structure of what should be eaten and not eaten by Israel is really significant because it reinforces life and death. It reinforces holy and common. It reinforces clean and unclean in that context. And Jesus didn't die to stop Jews from following this. He came To open the way for them to bring it into full operation. That's what fulfilling the law is. Not fulfilling it and getting rid of it. But bringing it into full operation. And this is why I believe that every Jew has to struggle with with these commandments. It's part of being authentically Jewish. I'm not going to tell them what to do. It's not my job to tell them what to do. But they have to struggle with that. My struggle is to come alongside and say, okay, the blood one is also on me. What else is on me in that context? Now, there's a lot of people in the Messianic movement and in the Christian world who take two extremes. Okay? One extreme is this. Jesus died on the cross, I can eat anything I want. Okay? Okay. That's not lordship. I don't know what that is, but it's common. The other extreme is, now we have to do all of the kosher laws 
in every sense of the word exactly the way the Jews do. So I'll let you in on a little secret. If you try to do it exactly the way the Jews do, you're going to lose your mind. Because they don't have, they're not in agreement on it. And they fight about it and they struggle with it. So this is about a struggle between you and your identity and you and your God. Now, can you eat only the clean animals? Of course. But you're not under obligation the way Israel is. In the same way that most of us observe Shabbat. Because Isaiah says, if the stranger who comes to the Lord observes the Shabbat, I will bless him, I will accept him and his sacrifices on my altar. But he doesn't demand it. But it's a sign between Israel and God forever. So, We can do a lot, but the danger is for us to think that we become Israel in that sense, and then under that covenant, or we begin to create a new kind of replacement. We'll be Israel because they're not doing a good job. We're not to do that. So you're free to limit your eating to these biblical categories, but that's not what the text is saying. It's giving that specifically to Israel. So... Yes. It gets worse than that. There are many, there are many non-Jews who have attached themselves to Messianic movement very fringely, who, uh, who imagine that they are keeping these commandments better than the Jews do. So they, it's not just that they're adhering to Jewish life. They're standing and criticizing the church for not being, for not following these laws. And they're also standing as an implicit condemnation of the Jewish community. It's a very cultic attitude, and it drives me totally nuts. Yes, I agree. I totally agree. So, Leviticus chapter uh, 17. And I want to pick it up. Uh, Verse 8 says, Then you shall say to them, Any man of the house of Israel, or from the aliens, that's the Gentiles, who sojourn among them, who offers a burnt offering of sacrifice. It's really important that we can be included in things, but we don't replace. And we're only included in some things, not in all things. And you have to read the, read the text carefully in that. Uh, so he says in verse 10, Any man from the house of Israel or from the Gentiles who sojourn with them, who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among the people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Therefore I said to the sons of Israel, No person among you may eat blood, nor may any Gentile who sojourns among you eat blood. There is, I believe, some level of obligation placed on us as Gentiles when we come alongside Israel. But we have to be really careful with that because what we're doing is we're coming alongside of. We're not replacing. We're not criticizing. We're not going in that. Now, he goes on and says in verse 15, When any person eats an animal which dies or is torn by beasts, 
whether he is a native or a Gentile, he shall wash his clothes, bathe in water, and remain unclean until evening. Then he becomes clean. Now notice that here is that commandment that finds its way into Acts 15 that includes us as well. We are not to eat something that dies of itself. In other words, if it is not killed for the purpose of food, then it's, it's unclean. It's not acceptable for food. And that's one that's also on us. So I've told you this before. I want to remind you. When I learned how veal is processed, that they take a little baby cow, hoist it in shackles, and never let it move. They just feed it and let it hang there so its muscles don't develop and it's very tender and it suffers its whole life. And then they kill it and make it food. How can that be not something that's strangled? How can that not be something that I refuse to eat? And once I learned that, I stopped eating in that context. So, I've told you my experience about blood. I've told you my experience about animals being killed improperly uh, for food. And that could have some meaning on our, uh, our, our diet as well. It's amazing to me, people are very, very interested in being a vegan or being something else for health reasons. But for God reasons, we don't care about this stuff. And I think we should be caring about it for God reasons. I don't care about I mean, the medical stuff is fine. But the medical world has become that secular world that I'm battling. And that's the reason why I've told you a few weeks ago, even now when I take medication... I say, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who sustains us through medical knowledge and, and, and medications. Because I want to acknowledge God in all my ways, because that's not a no-God zone when we take medicine, when we go to a doctor. That's also part of walking with God always in this context. So, what's the last one? Well, the last one is that we, we're told in Acts 15 that we are not... To eat anything that is sacrificed to idols. And again, I've, I've mentioned this one to you, but I want you to find ways to experience it yourself. It is my tradition, in struggling with this to understand it, that if I go into a restaurant, say a Chinese restaurant, if there's a, a Buddha sitting in the corner as a decoration, I don't care. I'll talk more about that when we look at Paul's uh, admonitions on this later. Uh, I don't care. It's just a piece of plaster. I don't care. Okay? But if in front of that idol is food, money, or incense, then the food of that restaurant has been dedicated to that God I'm forbidden to eat there because of the Acts 15 passage and Paul's explanation of it. And I'll go into that in more detail, but I want you to be familiar with the passages. So let me tell you what they are, and we'll go through them next week. First one is Romans chapter 14. You should look at that entire chapter. Second, I want you to see that one of the points that Paul makes in this is, what we do and what we don't do is not about judging our brother, condemning our brother, but our own struggle with the faith. Then I want you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and you will see that we have to be concerned in these matters of someone else's conscience. And then, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 
we have to be specifically concerned with the conscience of the unbeliever in these matters. And so we'll talk about those next week. Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8, and 1 Corinthians 10. So, what's our starting place? The Creator has placed restrictions on what we eat. The primary restrictions for Gentiles who belong to the Lord is that blood may not be consumed. It should be separated from the food and covered uh, as best we can. Secondly, food sacrifice to any so-called God other than the God of Israel, and right now that can't be done. Uh, that place is a place where that food is forbidden to us to eat. And then food that is tortured or inappropriately processed for eating, dies on its own, torn by beast, roadkill, that kind of thing, is, is also forbidden for us because it separates the issue of life and death. So, I believe this is an essential start for our households. We need to explain that for our kids. It'd be really good for you to, you know, we do the I spy this, I spy that. Have them is that a clean animal or an unclean animal? Right? Why is it? You know, what's it used for if it's a clean animal? What is God doing with Israel now? What have we learned from that? Uh, those, are, those are important uh, aspects. Secondly, blood should be separated whenever it's ordered in a restaurant or a barbecue or those kind of things. Kids need that experience that that's being separated and that that's uh, following the scriptures. Is this about salvation? It's not about getting saved. It's about expressing salvation and the kingdom to come. Uh, that's what it's about. When an animal is seen that has died along the road, mentioning that, well, that one wouldn't be allowed to be eaten anyway, but it really can't be eaten now. That reinforcing of the children is important. They need this in an everyday life context. Um, if an idol is present in a restaurant and indications of sacrifice are also present, the food there should be avoided. Uh, and you don't have to make a scene, but you do have to make an explanation to your children uh, in that context. So, I want you to begin to struggle with this because we need to move away from the compartmentalization of the spiritual into an itty-bitty living space and the secular as a place where we can do whatever we want because, after all, God has no opinion on it. God has an opinion on all that we have. We are bought with a price. We are to glorify God in our body, which is His. And that involves the struggle with obedience to the commandments. Not to be more righteous than another, not to be holier than another, but in gratitude for what he has done for us to struggle that his testimony may be in our children and in our grandchildren. Let's pray.